Okay, so we are going to be answering questions over the course of several days. Please excuse if there are choppy bits in between answers because it probably won't be continuous. Okay, so first one from Lord Tennyson's Pipe. What are your thoughts on Eastern philosophy, specifically Buddhism and Vedanta, and their relationship to the Western philosophical tradition? Well, that's a great question. It's a beautiful can of worms. Uh, apart from reading Western philosophy uh, as a historian, which is what my training is in, what I primarily did, uh, my focus has been on the history of the world. Uh, usually historians specialize, and to begin with, everybody has to, so I specialized in American history, but uh, I uh, spent the last 20 years or so reading and reconstructing, at least in my mind, the history of the world. Uh, so where does that leave us? Well, uh, I found that systems of thought, let's not call them philosophies or religions, because these categories are um, very limited in their usefulness. Um, what would count as a clear distinction between, say, Christianity and, and say, the philosophy of science um, in the West is more intimately connected in certain Eastern traditions. So the distinction between philosophy and religion breaks down, for example, when we deal with something like Confucianism. I mean, it's a kind of a parlor game for Western intellectuals to say, is it a philosophy, is it a religion? Well, actually, it is not. it doesn't fall easily within either of those categories. And so I think that maybe we could step back and try and look for more general categories. Let's call them belief systems or systems of thought. Uh, in that case, uh, there are many similarities and actually uh, identities, homologies, between Eastern and Western systems of thought. Here's the deal. I had to think what, I mean, I, I have a half-written history of the world, and I had to think through the problem of why religion exists at all. Um, so much effort and, and labor power goes into creating it and maintaining it. It's hard for me, that, for me to believe that it doesn't have a function. In other words, it's not purely decorative like the fins on an old Cadillac. It's actually doing something necessary. But the problem is, what necessary thing is it doing? And uh, what I found is that all of the great world religions that are mostly developed within the Axial Age, uh, roughly 1000 BC to the time of Christ, um, that would include Confucianism, Buddhism, the Vedic tradition in India, uh, also uh, monotheism in its various forms, uh, the Zoroastrian, the Jewish, the Christian, the Islamic, uh, and also I would include Platonism as a kind of Greek monotheism. It's, it's a, Plato's trying to create a rational monotheism. So when I look at all those systems of thought from the Axial Age, what I see is that they all have a common function. All of them thematize justice, and justice is what they supply to the societies that sustain them. And the reason why this is important is justice is a system of boundaries 
that allows a ruling class to control itself. Controlling a subservient class that you conquer is relatively easy to do. The problem is people overreach when they have no sense of justice, no sense of mutual obligation. And what they do, what these ruling classes do, is make themselves uh, hated, as, as Machiavelli taught us. And the key thing in politics um, is not to make yourself hated. If you look at the history of ancient Mesopotamia, what you'll find in the second millennium, and also the second half of the third millennium, is a kind of spiky up and down of societies and cultures being created, and then something causing them, either internal civil war or external invasion, causing them to collapse, and then there's a subsequent dark age for a century or two. And then another civilization emerges, and the same thing happens. It crashes, and you get a dark age. Think of this as attempts to create a state that can sustain itself. This is like creating a hardware. Uh, it's, this is like creating uh, a software program. And what this software program is supposed to do is allow itself to continue. It breaks down continuously, and the crash is caused by a lack of connection between the rulers and the ruled. What happens in the first millennium BC, all over the world, in China, in India, in Mesopotamia, in the, uh, in the Levant, in uh, the Mediterranean basin, is that new great well, world religions or philosophies, however you want to describe them, let's describe them as belief systems, emerge, but they all have one thing in common. They tell elites that they must restrain their appetites in favor of pursuit of justice. That's what Plato's Republic is about. Have a look at the book of Amos in, in the Old Testament. He's, he goes on and on about how wicked rich people are to poor people, and they mustn't do that because God doesn't like it. Uh, you can see the message of Jesus speaking for the dispossessed and wretched within the Roman Empire. Um, Confucius says that the main job of a Mandarin is looking after the people, and everything else is secondary. Uh, if you look at something like Buddhism, look at the effect that it had on Ashoka about 300 BC or so. He went from being a predatory military empire builder to uh, a religious, uh, how can I put it, kind of, a kind of political saint who gave up on, on injustice because he had been persuaded to do so by advocates of Buddhism. So this was Buddhism at its best. And my point then is something like this. All of the great world belief systems, most of which were found, were founded uh, in a thousand year period, were founded in order to serve the, the same function. It, the job of creating a, an idea of justice serves the function, or creating a, a sense of justice creates the function of stabilizing regimes by allowing elites to restrain themselves. 
Uh, if you want to look at what things were like before that, look at the beginning of, say, uh, Gilgamesh. What is Gilgamesh doing? He's raping all the local women. Why? Because he can. They don't have an idea of justice. I mean, they have an idea of law at this point, probably, but at least by the time it's written down. But the air, earlier archaic study, uh, story on which Gilgamesh is based shows what life was like before we had justice. And our t next question comes from Top Lad. He says, Dear Professor Sugru, my question to you goes as follows. After a whole career and life of thinking, being exposed to ideas and exposing others to ideas, which side of the fence are you on when it comes to morality, cognitivism, and non-cognitivism? Uh, okay. Back to human Kant. <laughs> uh, look, there are two ways of thinking about right and wrong and our judgments of good and evil. One is that they're made on the basis of a certain kind of social instinct, uh, a kind of sympathy. That's what Adam Smith's book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, is about. Um, for him, morality came from a, a kind of in, 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 inborn kind of human solidarity. We feel bad when we watch something ha bad happen to other people, and we feel really bad when we watch it happen to us. So uh, one possibility is that right and wrong comes from our feelings about each other and our feelings of uh, community and sympathy. The other alternative, and maybe it's not just an alternative, maybe it's consistent with it, um, is represented by somebody like Kant. There are moral facts which are accessible to reason, and if you're reasoning properly, everybody gets the same answer about right and wrong. Now this may seem a very extravagant claim, and in fact it is a very extravagant claim, but the point is that Kant was also willing to supply us with a kind of algorithm, uh, something the moral analog of Newtonian mechanics, which would allow us to get real-time, genuine answers to practical questions of right and wrong. Uh, this algorithm is called the categorical imperative. Kant says this is a quality that the obligation to follow this is a quality inherent in every human, in every rational being. So, um, is morality a, a kind of knowledge, or is it a kind of sentiment? Or does the distinction break down? In other words, um, Kant will allow that we have social sentiments, you know, uh, sympathy for other people, but if that's the, re the cause of our action, then he says it has no real moral value because the point of morality and rational morality is to intervene when your sentiments go awry. And there's something to be said for this because look, everybody's sentiments go awry once in a while. All of us are subject to anger and rage. And look back on your life. Look at the decisions you made when you were really angry. How many of them were good decisions? So just hoping that that feeling or sentiment is going to be a satisfactory guide to our judgments of right and wrong, it's an awfully optimistic idea. On the other hand, there's also a sense of perhaps unjustified optimism in thinking people rational enough to live by the categorical imperative. On the other hand, uh, as far as I can tell, for most of his life, Kant himself did.
And I know of many people who take Kantian ethics literally and seriously and do their best to live up to that. Are they in the midst of self-deception? I, I don't know. I don't have the God's eye view. My sense is, is that uh, any moral feeling or sentiment or impulse that doesn't have uh, some connection to a moral principle is probably dangerous to the person that has it and to the people around them. Right? In other words, if for some reason you believe that uh, all people with quality X need to have some harm done to them, um, the question would be what possible moral principle could justify a, a feeling like that? And maybe it's better for you to restrain your feelings on the basis of the fact that you see that it's not a reasonable thing, as opposed to deciding that your feelings are determinative and that you have to bow down to them and that, uh, re and that feeling trumps reason. Now, I know there are many attempts to muddy the waters, right? Think about Freud's idea of rationalization where we provide rationales which are a kind of cover for our real and perhaps unexplored and perhaps even unknown motives. So, I guess you want a straightforward answer from me, and I wish I could, but the closest I can come to giving you a straightforward answer is, yes, I believe morality is cognitive. Yes, I believe Kant basically gets it right. Yes, I know about the nightmare cases of the secret police coming to arrest your friend and you're hiding him in your house. Um, the only thing I would ask from a kind of Brit uh, from a kind of American pragmatic philosophical standpoint is how often do secret police show up at your house? And uh, if the answer is never, um, I was wondering if you could think of any real world example of a time when you should do bad stuff, but everybody else should obey the moral rule prohibiting that bad thing. So it doesn't mean that I don't think there are moral feelings and I don't like them. One of the problems with Kantianism is that it's a really great philosophy for people that are just awful. If you can mention like Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, you could make that guy a blasted saint. Why? If you give him the categorical imperative, every time he decides to do something cruel and nasty and uh, dismissive of his fellow man, Kant is going to show up in his, <laughs> on his phone or in his brain, and he's going to say, do you want Tiny Tim to die? Well, maybe you do. Can you generalize that? Under what maxim? And so, yeah, he kicks in some money for Tiny Tim. And yeah, he gives Bobcatcher to raise. And yeah, he gives him some coal so he doesn't freeze to death while he's doing his job. And, in fact, all the awful stuff he had been doing gets fixed by the categorical imperative. I mean, it's actually kind of impressive. On the other hand, if you're a really kind, really good, saintly person, I can't see what you need the categorical imperative for. Um, because, well, you're always inclined to do kind and benevolent things to your fellow man. <laughs> uh, it, that's a way of saying that perhaps from Kant's view, remember Kant described himself as an orthodox Lutheran, and I believe he was. 
um, or perhaps an unorthodox Lutheran, um, either Jesus never had to obey the categorical imperative because he never had any impulse towards doing anything cruel to anyone else or evil to anyone else, or the reason why he never did anything cruel to anyone else is because he was obeying the categorical imperative 100% of the time. One of the funny things here is that it's impossible to, to distinguish which. They may be the same thing. That's weird. And this next question comes from Ali Lutfi. And um, before I read this, I just want to give a disclaimer that we probably won't be able to get to all of the questions, but we will get to the ones that um, the professor finds most interesting. And this question says, I wanted to know how you differentiate between a great work of philosophy with pseudo-philosophy slash obscuritanism. For instance, how many people believe Heidegger and his work to be of utmost importance, but others, like Bertrand Russell and Karl Popper, found his work to be obscure and nonsensical? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that's just one of many examples of philosophical, or ph philosophers and perhaps more generally philosophical traditions talking past each other. Uh, yes, uh, I don't think there's a silver bullet uh, which allows me to discern which things are worth reading and which are not. I make mistakes about this. Look, we're all finite. You know, we all read and a finite number of authors. We have to choose some and not others. The uh, the kind of childish idea that you can have it all, no, you can't. So that makes me sound a little bit like Lucian, the Roman skeptic, saying we get a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's not entirely uh, a roll of the dice either. Um, since my training is as a historian, um, I take the historical dimension as fundamental, or it's, it's where I start out. And look, everybody's got to start somewhere, as Kierkegaard pointed out. I don't know why it's good to start there. Or I could start with physics. I could start with a lot of things, but I'm starting with history, okay? The point is, once you make your choice of what aspect of reality, aspect of the world that you're going to frame, uh, that you're going to use to frame everything else, uh, that actually helps me a lot in the history of, of philosophy in the West, but also the history of religion in the West and the history of, what do we call them, uh, belief systems outside the West. So, yeah, I've spent time reading Confucius and Chuang Tzu, and uh, I, I know the uh, Quran, and uh, I know uh, the... Uh, some of the Vedas, anyway. Uh, what my favorite in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, my favorite piece is uh, On the Opulence of the Absolute. It's a really beautiful litany, which finds God everywhere. I really like that. Uh, I know some of the Buddhist sutras. I like the, uh, the Diamond Sutra, and of course the Kama Sutra is everybody's favorite. Uh, so know a little bit about Western and uh, non-Western intellectual traditions. I don't know it as well as I know the West. The West I know cold. Um, life, like uh, Hippocrates says, um, life is short and art is long. So I just do the best I can dog paddling about when I'm outside the West. Um, 
where is obscurantism? Well, one man's metaphor is another man's gibberish, right? Um, it's not clear that thinking itself gives us some standards by which to decide what counts as real and what doesn't, all right? It's not that I don't think that there are philosophies which are a waste of time or which I just am not willing to, to expend my, my effort on, but uh, that's because of the fact that they're all within the matrix of history. And so that's the way I put together my understanding of the connection between philosophical uh, ideas, but also philosophical schools. Let me give an example. Yes, I think Heidegger is greatly overrated. I think he was a moral monster. And I think that he's the fact that he's a Nazi uh, or was a Nazi and then was an unrepentant Nazi after the war ended. Um, I think that that suggests his conception of the human nature and of the human project is deeply corrupt. Same sort of thing with Foucault. Um, Foucault was a pedophile, among other things. He also knowingly passed HIV because he had anonymous sex when he knew he was HIV positive. Again, um, it's possible to have a very high IQ and a very great deal of intellectual capacity and be a moral monster. Most of the high-ranking Nazis were actually reasonably uh, cultivated individuals. Cult culture and civilization by itself is not going to give us uh, a guide to morals. And uh, that's what makes the, this sort of a problem so sticky. Is Heidegger more or less an obscure philosopher, or does he have something greatly important to tell us? Depends on who you ask. Um, is what he gives us philosophy at all? Is there still philosophy left in the time of Heidegger? I don't know what to make of that or how, or how to answer a question like that. Um, the boundaries have slipped, all right? And now it's hard to distinguish between uh, real philosophy and real reality, for that matter, um, and it's become controversial. <laughs> uh, I'll finish off with this idea. I'm not 100% sure how to distinguish between nonsense and sense. I have a, uh, a couple of examples. You know, I would throw astrology away. On the other hand, I would hold on to formal logic. But as we get closer and closer to that gray area in the middle, it's not so easy or it's not so obvious. And this next question comes from Benjamin. He says, how did you come to be such a great lecturer? I'm particularly interested in the kind of reading and writing habits you came to possess when making sense of all this philosophy to create such coherent lectures. Okay. Uh, well, uh, I've always liked to read. And uh, I spent a lifetime reading and studying, and it was really voluntary. Uh, you know... I enjoyed my studies, and I also enjoyed uh, next year's studies and the studies thereafter, and I tried to get as far and as fast as I could um, in reading. So I just liked it, loved it, actually, um, from the very word go. Um, so for me, it, it, 
it wasn't so much a habit as, you know, what I did with my life. I mean, I, could, I knew that I wanted to do this the way people that uh, become musicians know that music is what is, is central to their life. Uh, so I always had my face in a book for my whole life. Um, until I went away to college, I used to flop around pretty much in any part of a library, pretty much haphazardly, and it was all okay because, you know, there's no downside to a little bit of this and a little bit of that at that age. But uh, once I went to college, I found out uh, how much genuinely learned people know, and I was terrified and appalled and delighted. So uh, what I did was decide to read systematically, because I knew I was going to be a professor. Um, each of the summers that I had off in my college years, so the first summer I read all of Shakespeare, the second summer I read all of Plato, and the third summer I read all of Nietzsche. Those, that's my big three. And I've learned a lot from all of them. Uh, at least then, when I was going to graduate school, I would have three writers that I could hang my other knowledge on or connect my other knowledge to. Uh, if you want to do this, if you want to be uh, well-read, if you want to get to the higher levels of cultural competence, uh, there's no elevator, you have to climb the stairs. So you have to put in the legwork, which means that you cruise the books. Now, I was very lucky. Um, I got a chance to teach at Columbia while I was still in graduate school there. And so what that meant is that I had five years of only one class, and I had a chance to work out the history of philosophy because that's what I was teaching. And I had access to a gigantic university library, and because I now had a faculty ID card, I could have all the books I wanted. So, uh, yeah, I lived like a monk for five years. They're among the happiest years of my life. And uh, I had a program of reading, which began at the beginning of, you know, the Western great books like they have on the uh, uh, outside of Butler Library. But uh, also... Uh, it allowed me to read in between the books, and it also allowed me to read a lot of history. Uh, I taught a class in world history at Johns Hopkins right after I got my PhD at Columbia, and uh, it's always been a focus of mine. And so uh, I'm about, I don't know, a big chunk of a way through a history of the world, which I may or may not uh, survive to uh, complete, but... Uh, it allowed me to pull together um, the synoptic view insofar as I was capable of doing that. Now let me move to the question of lecturing. Um, if you want to be a first-rate lecturer, you have to have something to say. And what that means is, is that it's okay to write some notes out, it's okay to put some notes on the board so the students can follow you, but once you are Start it. Once you start class, you throw the papers away because the lecture is you. You don't read your lecture to the students. If that's all you have to offer, send them an email. If you have something to say, you engage in a sort of Socratic interaction. You give them a lecture, more or less, 
on the topic, but you encourage and, in some cases, uh, provoke objections and replies and questions. And that's what, what you're looking for. That's how you get the real Socratic uh, element in your, in your teaching. But here's the deal. This is like improvising at the piano, all right? Improvising at the piano is not random. It is not like the cat walking across the keyboard. You have to know more about what you're talking about to improvise than to play from sheet music because the music is there. Whereas you're making it up on the fly because you know the uh, structure of sound. So uh, what I say to newly minted PhDs when they're asking me about how to become a good teacher, an effective lecturer, how to take charge of a lecture hall or a seminar room just by walking in. What you need to do is to uh, be the lecture. And the rule is, if you need notes, you're not prepared. This next question comes from Mushroom Monarch. He says, Dr. Sugru, have you read or even heard of Mencius Moldbug, a.k.a. Curtis Yarvin, and his blog, Unqualified Reservations? If not, Moldbug is one of the pioneers of the neo-reactionary ideology, drawing much of his inspiration on Carlyle and John Burnham's, as well as the subjects of said book, The Machiavellians. Yeah. Um, I know... Uh, I know more of him and his notoriety than work that I've read. Uh, the little that I have looked at um, struck me as, uh, well, um, this is perhaps a, a delicate way of putting it, but uh, it struck me as being reactionary in the bad sense. <laughs> now, maybe this reactionary in a good sense, and we might talk about that sometime, but uh, what this seemed to me was um, an act of despair that uh, the American political tradition all right, is collapsing. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We'll have to see. We've gone, undergone worse trials than we have now, but... Um, the idea is that uh, Mencius Moldbug wants some sort of what I would describe as techno-fascist regime, if I understand his writing correctly. And uh, he admires the communist regime in China and uh, thinks that representative democracy has failed. Now, he's a sort of cautionary tale, as are the rest of the alt-right. Let me make this real clear. I have no sympathy for racist, white nationalist, tinfoil hat, uh, move to Idaho and pack away ammunition political thinking. In other words, look, uh, I like a responsible conservatism. Uh, I like Bill Buckley and the tradition that he represents because what he did was shake up the American right and kick out the neo-confederate, neo-racist element. You can have conservative political thought without succumbing to dangers like that. 
Now, if you look at the fact that Carlisle is a wonderful writer and uh, very moving, uh, the difficulty is that uh, Romanticism in England was uh, pretty much past its, uh, its expiration date by Carlyle's time. I mean, it's on the way out. And by now, romantic stuff about blood and soil and uh, collective traditions and all the rest of this business, the soulless uh, world of the machine and the, uh, the moneymaker, um, most of that's make-believe. It's not a political theory. Um, and the political program that comes from it is uh, not calculated to maximize the happiness of our society, um, but rather to, uh, to express rage at the inability of, or the, the, the fact that certain people perceive themselves as being unable to control the events around them. So, yeah, I think that the far right and the far left are responses to overwhelming anxiety. <laughs> I'm tempted to give a psychological account of them. And uh, Mencius Moldbug or Curtis Yarvin and the rest of the alt-right crew, um, I have no, I have sympathy for them in the sense that I think they have serious, genuine problems. I have no sympathy for the political program they're proposing. What I'd like to see, because I'm an old-fashioned lefty, all right, the kind of lefty that doesn't exist anymore, pretty much, because I, I still am the kind of lefty for whom external reality and the real world matters, and I think it's out there whether I like it or not, pretty much. That would be just me. I know it's a, uh, I'm a real dinosaur that way. But my point is this. I'd like to see cross-racial, cross-ethnic, class-based politics that address the drastic inequity that has been, uh, been growing in America for the last at least 30 years. 90% of the, uh, the wealth that was generated by the new information-based economy and by the process of globalization was consumed by 10% of Americans. And what we have here is a grossly dysfunctional ruling elite. And when you have a grossly dysfunctional ruling elite, people are going to get desperate, and desperate people believe desperate things. So my view is that the problem that we have in America is clever people who have been to the kind of universities that I did, that I have, and who taught there. Also, there's a corrupt mass media, and Washington itself is deeply corrupt. So whether we'll be able to weather the storm, I don't know. But uh, the extremes of the right, say Antifa, or the extremes of the uh, left, say Antifa, and the extremes of the right, say uh, Mencius Molbug or Black Lives Matter, um, they seem to me the product of desperation. And that means we have a governing elite that's been at the feed trough too long and unwilling even to provide for the infrastructure of the society they've been fleecing.
Next one comes from Thomas Caminito. He says that excruciating existential choice between the aesthetic life and the life of faith. As a professor of philosophy, surely you have choos chosen the former rather than the latter. Have you ever found yourself reconsidering your choice? Having chosen the aesthetic life, has your soul ever been stirred up to seriously consider the life of faith? Well, um, that's a very interesting question. Um, uh, I, I have lived the life of the aesthete, but I don't now and have not for many years. Uh, I think both the, uh, certainly the ethical life is preferable. And then I think it's possible but unclear that the, that the jump to the religious life in Kierkegaard's mad sense is a, is a, prefer, is a desirable extent, extension of that. So when you say that surely I'm an aesthetic man, I've, I know what it's like to live that way, but I don't live that way and don't believe, because I don't believe that, or at least don't anymore. Um, think about it this way. Think of the brothers Karamazov, all right? I was born Ivan Karamazov because I could do all kinds of stuff with my brain and became Dmitri because I like to party and enjoy myself. But eventually, Dmitri has a change of heart and uh, now I'm a real bad stand-in for Alyosha. The reason why is that I suck at being a Christian. I, I try it, and I continue to try it, just so I suck at it. I don't even like my enemies, much less do I love them. I mean, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm pretty defective that way. Uh, on the other hand, uh, my point is this. Kierkegaard is right on the money when he says um, the aesthetic life is only possible if you have essentially uh, bovine intelligence. If your idea of, great, of a great life is to uh, chew the cud forever until you die, um, the aesthetic life is for you. On the other hand, suppose you have something beyond that in terms of mental activity. Well then the problem is, is that the aesthetic life leads to despair. All right, and uh, that's why so many very creative people are simultaneously so self-destruct, so so often self-destructive people. If they don't get some religious transcendence, they settle for some dangerous second-best transcendence, like liquor or narcotics or you know something like that. And uh, the result is that uh, it kills them. All right. Uh, Kierkegaard says that boredom is the root of all evil. And the problem with the aesthetic life, as we see it in, say, Lucretius, is that this is going to get boring really quickly if you have anything in the way of wit. If you don't, yeah, you can keep on doing what Lucretius wants to or what Epicurus wants to in his pleasure garden. But as soon as you start thinking beyond that, um, this is going to become increasingly tedious, and uh, it's hard to know which way it'll go, but it's certainly not going to go in a good direction from there. So uh, think of how many very creative people failed to find transcendence, ended up becoming suicidal. And here I'm not just talking about people like, say, Van Gogh or Virginia Woolf. 
Um, think of somebody like Kurt Cobain, right? Uh, you know, the song All Apologies. Uh, what else should I be? All Apologies. Uh, I wish I was like you, easily amused. Kurt Cobain was bored, was bored, you know, with money and narcotics and women and eventually blew his brains out. Uh, that's the terrifying danger of the aesthetic life. It doesn't necessarily give you a reason to jump from one to the other. This is a sort of Pascalian intervention where I'm just pointing out to you uh, the dangers of failing to find transcendence, personal and cultural. Uh, whether to jump from the from the ethical life, which we get in the second volume of Either Or, to the religious life, I have to admit, much as I admire uh, Kierkegaard and his Knight of Faith, I can't join him. And yeah, maybe this gets me damned, because I'm just too blasted, rational, and platonic. Um, the problem is that every time people claim to get more than rational, almost always it means they end up being less than rational. There's no way, by definition, that we can know whether we should make this jump from the ethical man to the religious man in Kierkegaard's sense, because it has to be uh, a choice without criteria. And uh, while he basks in that, I think that there are too many monsters and too many dangers to bringing your own personal uh, experiences, no matter how inconsistent with right and wrong, uh, bringing them to the fore and saying that that's more important. I guess like the, uh, like the judge, who's the main figure in the second volume of Either Or, um, I got stuck on Kant because he's so damn good. Yeah, I respect Mill and will be happy to use things like utilitarian calculations when that seems to be the right thing. And I even have you know, a high regard for Aristotle, particularly the idea of phrenesis, good judgment. Um, I think that things like Aristotle's golden mean or Kant's uh, categorical imperative or uh, the moral sentiments of Adam Smith and Hume or uh, the maximization of pleasure for the greatest number that we get with Mill, um, I think that there's something like tools that you could have in a toolkit and the key to understanding how to act morally and justly is to have what Aristotle called phrenesis, to have the sufficient judgment to know what to, when to use what tool. Everybody's utilitarian sometime, but there are nightmare cases we don't want to go to. Same is true with Kant. Uh, we don't get those same nightmare cases usually with uh, Aristotle because it's so flexible. It is uh, of dubious utility under certain circumstances. Um, but what I'd be inclined to say is I don't think that the... Uh, the aesthetic life is a, is an adequate or satisfactory life, and yet I don't have uh, 
the madness or enthusiasm. Look up the, the source of the Greek word enthusiasm. It means enteosiasmus, having a God within. Um, I get all nervous with the idea of having a God within when I get too terribly enthusiastic. And um, the enthusiasm of Kierkegaard is, and uh, Tertullian, who's his uh, patristic precursor, um, it's too much for me. So here I am, stuck ma making more or less sense and trying to uh, live through a cognitive view of right and wrong and uh, uh, a realist view of human politics. And this question is from Brian Holden. He says, do you believe it even possible to have an informed electorate such that they're able to base their political motivations purely on the facts, not on the narratives? about how a candidate or policy actually aligns with their personally held values? Or do you think that the electorate as a whole will always be subject to influence and manipulation by outside forces, and that the notion of an informed electorate is itself uninformed? <laughs> oh, that's a can of worms. Um, well, we have a, here an entanglement of multiple problems like the American intellectual class, university teachers, mainstream media is deeply corrupt. And uh, at one time, let's say this is back in the, the age of Walter Cronkite, we had a kind of rough corporate liberal consensus. And uh, Uncle Walter did his best to uh, bring us what he understood as uh, factual reality as it was shared by the rest of, you know, the other hundred million or so Americans. Um, now, we've had the fragmentation of our mass media and people are only getting information that they want to get and they depend on outlets like Fox or MSNBC to filter away unpleasant, inconvenient realities or to extenuate them and manipulate them for uh, reasons that are distinct from the general good or the public good. Uh, it seems that our governing elite has lost sight of the idea of a general good. And yeah, I think there is such a thing. Now, I'm not sure that this is easy to define, but uh, I wonder who it is that would be able to pursue the general good if not the people involved. Um, really, what you're doing here is asking Plato's question in the Republic. How can we connect knowledge and power? It seems that democratic regimes are run by knaves and populated by fools. And uh, there's a lot of truth in that. The, more, the difficulty is, if you want some of the kind of regime what makes you think that regime is going to be better rather than worse? Let me help you with some of the possible alternatives. 
technocracy. Imagine that we have just technical experts run everything. Well, the first problem is that not every question is a technical question. There are some judgments of both aesthetics and of uh, morality and of, uh, how can I put it, human nature, which uh, are, uh, well, not clearly uh, given to technicians, to scientists, to engineers. Um, for that, you need people that have had the full gamut of human experience. So, even if you could get, say, engineers or technicians to run society, um, there are going to be problems that can't be solved just by engineering technique. All right? Even if there, even if there were, all right, um, why do we want to maximize whatever it is uh, engineers can bring us? Maybe we'd prefer to have, for example, what artists can bring us. All right. Um, with regard to uh, to elites like Plato wanted, the difficulty is they've been tried and found wanting. Yes, uh, the for example, the ruling elite of Singapore is a small number of very able people, highly capable, and I have a high estimation of their achievements in the 20th and the 21st century. I'm not sure that it's, it's certainly not a utopia. On the other hand, it's a much better place to be born than, say, Johannesburg or Bangkok. All right? Uh, now, the Chinese Communist Party might be an example of an elite, essentially uh, renamed and rebranded Mandarins, um, that uh, try and govern technocratically. Well, yeah, they, they are very successful under certain circumstances, but there's a fly in the ointment as there is everywhere else, right? Um, who watches the watchman? When you centralize the, and you focus that much power on the party and the individuals that make it up, money is going to change hands. And this is no reflection on the Chinese Communist Party, because it's true in America as well. It's true in Europe as well. It's true in Russia as well. It's true in Latin America as well. All right? Now, the problem here is that it's not clear how uh, very large centralized institutions are capable of self-policing. Think, for example, of the Catholic Church. It's been around a very long time, but its record of addressing and fixing abuses on its own by itself is very, very poor. The problems that generated the Protestant Reformation could have been addressed centuries earlier, and the Church failed to address these problems. Nowadays, the church is a global institution with a billion-plus adherents, but it does a very poor job of policing itself, and we have an ongoing problem with pedophilia. Every 
large institution, every powerful institution that is not answerable and transparent to someone or something else becomes corrupt. So I grant that it's happened in America. My point is, it's also happened everywhere else that they have any other form of government as far as I can see. Uh, if you remember the Beijing Olympics, when they had to close down factories within, I don't know, 50 or 100 kilometers of the capital in order to make the air breathable, that's the result of massive bribery, right? Otherwise, they would not have officials look the other way and allow the air to be unbreathable most of the time. So it's not that there's a unique problem with corruption among the Chinese. My point is that every elite tends towards corruption. What it needs is some internal ideology which allows elites to control themselves. And uh, none of them work perfectly. And that's, uh, that's a problem when you look for alternatives to democracy. You don't want representative democracy? Okay, you want just one person to rule? Who would that be? What sort of a monster of ego and pride um, and kind of messianic self-regard would want to run a country autocratically? I mean, anyone who would want that should not be allowed to. Um, what are the alternatives? Uh, I don't see how rule of one man or woman is going to work. I don't see how rule of a few is going to work. I am living in a, def uh, a grossly dysfunctional America, almost Weimar America, and uh, I know that representative democracy is not working. It's not dead, but it has serious problems. What we need is someone who's an ass-kicker from within the way, say, Erasmus was for Catholicism or the way Teddy Roosevelt was for the United States. Someone that steps up, sees the problems, addresses the problems, and allows us to get out from under them, at least in part. So uh, is re representative democracy possible? I don't know. All right. I'm inclined to say possible compared to what? Uh, we're going to get a small number of real clever people to uh, tell us how to live. Look, we've already done that. That's the Supreme Court. Well, then maybe we'll get a small number of people to run the economy. They beat you there. There are uh, people of vast wealth and financial influence that have a grossly disproportionate influence over the economy. Uh... You want to give it all to one person? I don't see how that's going to help us. So we can give it to nobody. We can give it, and, and that leads to anarchy. And have a look at what that's like. Uh, it's real Hobbesian. We can have one person rule, and that'll be corrupt. So my point is, right now, I would take the Burkean line. Whatever we happen to have, which is the U.S. Constitution, I'm sticking with it because it seems to me that the alternatives are more dangerous and more extravagant in their destructive potential 
So, uh, what do I think of populism or democracy? Um, one cheer. I, I, I'm, uh, we, I give three cheers for the things I like greatly. I'll give this one cheer because I have no cheers for the alternatives. So we'll muddle through and see what happens.